Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, June 13th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, for 28 years of my life, I lived on the Hawaiian Islands. Let's see. Oh, well, I'm going to have to turn this way because I can't see it up there. Anyway, I, for, <laughs> for 20 years of my life, I lived on the Hawaiian Islands, six years on the Big Island of Hawaii, 22 years on Oahu, and there are tons of things to do. There we go. Paul is going to get us over to the sli- sermon slide. Let's try again. There we go. Hundred, uh, tons of things to do in the Hawaiian Islands, including visiting the Bishop Museum. Uh, not only does the Bishop Museum carry a lot of native Hawaiian art and artifacts, but they have their own planetarium. Uh, It's way cool. I visited a number of times with various groups, and to be able to sit in the comfy chairs and look up at the ceiling and see the the Milky Way and the stars there projected before your eyes, it's just fabulous. I went to high school on the Big Island, and this is the view from Hilo Bay, looking up at one of the two uh, major mountains on the Big Island, Mauna Kea. Mount Achaia is known for being an excellent location for observatories, and uh, now there are 13 of them atop it. Jody and I have even had the privilege of traveling to the summit at sunset and stargazing afterwards. It's, it's amazing. It's literally one of the best locations in the world for stargazing, which is why there are 13 major observatories there. Well, when I served as pastor at IAEA United Methodist Church on the island of Oahu, just about every summer, we would take our youth group over to the Methodist camp known as Mekokiko. Mekokiko is the uh, Hawaiian uh, equivalent for Methodist. And uh, I won't be able to show you the picture of what the camp looked like right now, but that's okay. The camp is still being developed. And so every summer, our trips, not only were there to go and camp, but also to, to work and to do uh, whatever it was that the camp needed to get it uh, up and running closer to their full capacity. Well, the camp was on the slopes of Mount Achaia, the mountain uh, that you see there in the background, and it had amazing views of the ocean. But far and away, my favorite time of the camp every year was uh, right after campfire. And, and uh, of course, it'd be in the evening, we're getting ready to go to bed, but we would just stay and let the, the embers of the campfire start to die out. And uh, we would sit up and look at the stars and uh, with our backs to the forest and, and, and just fall in love with the beauty that was above us and, and see shooting stars and uh, try to pick out different constellations and see the, the Milky Way it was amazing. In his book, Sermons on the, on the Psalms, Reverend Herod Bosley talks about the famous author H.G. Wells, who penned such classics as The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, and The Time Machine. And And though he was truly a brilliant mind, Wells had a level of doubt and despair that clung to much of his work. The longer he lived, 
Some say the gloomier he became. And in his autobiography, he wrote this. There was a time when my little soul shone and was uplifted at the starry enigma of the sky. That is gone, absolutely. Now I can go out and look at the stars as I look at the pattern of wallpaper on a railway station waiting room. Wow. Well, welcome to a brand new sermon series. We're doing this for four weeks. It's called The Rocks Cry Out. We're going to take a deeper look at a few passages in the Bible about nature and what we can learn from all of creation. Now, we don't ever want to get to the point where H.G. Wells was, where looking out at the stars is simply uh, like looking at some kind of random wallpaper pattern. In his book, All Creation Sings, J. Ellsworth Callis writes this, I want us to go beyond nature's exquisite beauty until we learn some of the lessons it would teach us, lessons about both life and God, if only we listen with our whole being. So that's exactly what I'm hoping we'll be able to do in the weeks that follow. Help us look at the, this natural world that God has blessed us with and to see what it is we can learn from it, to see how we can be inspired to draw closer to the creator of us all. In the weeks to follow, we'll look at uh, what we can learn from the flowers, from creatures, even the oceans. But today we're going to start with looking at the whole of creation in general. Biblical writers often found their greatest lessons in the world of nature. Jesus used elements from nature as the center of his teaching, not just because he lived among God's beautiful creation as we all do, but, but also because he grew up praying the Psalms. And the Psalms are full of references to the beauty of this incredible world. And whether the old, uh, when the Old Testament writer wanted to explain the tremendous wisdom of King Solomon, the book of 1 Kings, he wrote this. Solomon composed 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He would speak of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows in the wall. He would speak of animals and birds and reptiles and fish. You see, Solomon knew that incredible wisdom could be found in God's creation if only we would pay attention to it. The title for this sermon series comes from Jesus' story of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We, we in the church call it Palm Sunday. Now, there's four primary books in the New Testament that tell about the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're known as the Gospels. Well, many of the Gospels share similar stories in Jesus' life, but with some variance. Some stories, however, are unique to one uh, of the authors. But Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the start of what would be his last week on earth, now that's told by all four gospel writers. And we're going to look at Luke's account today. Fred Craddock, in his interpretation commentary in the Gospel of Luke, remarks that Luke has a few differences in the way that he retells this scene from Jesus' life, this entry into Jerusalem. For starters, there is no mention of palms or uh, cut branches being spread out on the ground. Uh, Luke says the bystanders spread their cloaks on the road. Nor will you find any hosannas being shouted in Luke's gospel. Both of those elements, the, the cut branches, the cut palms, and shouting hosanna, those were usually present at nationalistic parades and festivals in Israel. 
something that evidently Luke did not want to have incorporated into this story. Let's pick up uh, the story in Luke's gospel and see the other two significant differences. Luke 19, verses 37 and 38. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, one of the ways scholars often interpret Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is by looking at the crowds, right? On Sunday, many were excited about Jesus' arrival, believed he could be the Messiah, the one that would help overthrow Rome's grip on Israel. But then on Friday, those Many of those from the same crowd are the ones that are now calling for his crucifixion. But according to Luke, that's not the group that's praising God here. Did you catch what Luke said? He said the, the whole multitude of the disciples were praising God joyfully. So these are his followers, the ones that have been with Jesus in his ministry, not just the 12 disciples, but others that have followed him from place to place they are not some random bystanders like some of the other Gospels report, which is why this last part is so interesting. Verses 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Now, this objection by the Pharisees uh, uh, asking Jesus to, to silence the people shouting out, that's only recorded in Luke's gospel. And, and some Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of the time, they get miffed about this message that the followers are purporting. They're not saying, oh, the kingdom of God is coming. No, they're saying, this is the king himself. This is the Messiah, the promised one that the, that the prophets had, had looked to. He is here among us. Now, I know many of, the many of the Pharisees didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also had to walk this fine line, right, of not upsetting the Roman authorities. Because if, if word got out that a new king was in town, uh, not Caesar, but a new king, well, who knows how hard the Romans would come down upon the Jewish community. They point blank, tell Jesus, you know, th this is not doing anyone any good. You better get them quiet. Tell them to shut up. Otherwise, we're all going to be in trouble. And Jesus says, hey, even if they would be quiet, the very stones along this pathway would shout out. Meaning that there are some things in life that are just true, like Jesus' lordship. And all of creation, even the rocks, the stones know this. Psalm 148 makes the claim that all creation praises God, the sun and the moon, shining stars, mountains and hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animals, flying birds, everything in creation praises God. Thus, the rocks cry out. Fred Craddock points that the fact that although shouting stones, it's, it's really just a figure of speech, the Bible does portray a number of events which involve creation. We might think, no, you know, it only really affects us humans. For example, in the second creation story in the book of Genesis, the sin of Adam and Eve, it says it causes the earth to produce thorns and thistles. Isaiah uh, sings about a reign of peace on earth where cows and bears will graze together, lions and lambs will lie down together side by side. 
Matthew talks about a special star that appeared at the birth of Jesus and that the earth shuddered and quaked the moment that Jesus died. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report that when Jesus was put on the cross for three hours, there was a total eclipse of the sun. Humanity and the earth are connected. Craddock writes, all this dramatic language reminds us of that which we sometimes forget. All life is from God. The whole universe shares together blame and blessing, life and death. So I want us to look at Psalm 19, the first six verses. It begins like this. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. Now, it's been said that the Psalms are the prayer book of the Hebrew people. The psalmist begins this prayer of praise by stating the fact that creation, specifically the skies above us, well, they testify to God's glory. Arthur Weiser, in his Old Testament library commentary on Psalms, remarks that a master is known by his work. Isn't that great? And as amazing as some human artists are, none compare to how God paints our skies and the flowers and the mountains and the hills and the meadows and the valleys every day. Verses 2 to 4. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So, in literature, personification is known as the uh, attribution of a human characteristic to something that is non-human. And all throughout the Bible, elements of God's creation are portrayed as having the capacity to acknowledge the Creator. Day and night, skies, clouds, stars, other celestial bodies, they're shouting out about God's glory. Now, of course, there are no literal words being spoken by the creation, but if we open our eyes and, and see the majesty of the world around us, well, the message is loud and clear. When we see it, we hear what creation is saying. James Mays, in his interpretation commentary on Psalms, remarks that we are in the midst of an unending concert sung by the universe to the glory of God. Every day, God continues to reveal God's self to the world everywhere. The, the concert that's being sung, the language that's being spoken can be understood by every nation, tribe, and race. It's a message of testimony that has been since the constant companion of God from the beginning of time. For thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, if only we will stop long enough to realize we are in this concert hall with creation singing. It's not merely wallpaper on a railway station room. Verses 4 to 6. In the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. Nothing is hid from its heat. It's a wonderful conflagration of mythology and Hebrew faith, and the psalmist used, or the psalmist used the ancient image of the sun god, 
moving through the sky. Many, many cultures had a sun god. For the Greeks, it was Apollos, who drove his chariot across the sky during the day, pulling the sun. There was even an understanding that the sun god would rest at night, uh, lying in the arms of his beloved. So the psalmist talks about God coming out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, running its course with joy. It's a, it's a wonderfully poetic way of saying that every day in which we see the sun rise and set, it's a reminder of God's presence in our lives and in the world around us. Maltzby Babcock was an athlete in the late 19th century. He was an outstanding baseball pitcher. He was a champion swimmer in college at Syracuse. And, uh, and after he graduated, he kept himself in shape by running. When he was pastoring at First Presbyterian Church in Lockport, New York, he would run early in the morning to the brow of a hill two miles away and look over the amazing Lake Ontario. And before he left for his run, he would always tell his church staff the same thing. I'm going out to see my father's world. And then he would run to the brow of the hill, from the brow of the hill, two more miles away to a deep ravine where as many as 40 different birds found sanctuary there. And then he would make his way back to church. It was in the morning of these runs that God inspired him to pen the words of one of Christendom's favorite hymns, This is my Father's world. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas, his hands, the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. To say the rocks cry out is to say that that God's fingerprints can be found all over creation. And as J. Ellsworth Callis says, the challenge is for us to go beyond simply admiring the beauty of nature and then seeking to learn the lessons that they try to teach us about life, about God, about faith, about our relationship together. If only we will listen. The Apostle Paul in his first chapter of his letter to the church in Rome says this, Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. Which is beautifully written, don't you think? In fact, it's something that could be part of a motivational poster that adorns our living room walls, right? Creation testifies to the holy until you get to verses 21 and 22. Paul continues... So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, because futile in their thinking and in their senseless minds, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. (laughs) Sweet Jesus. So, here we are, friends, right? For the next four weeks, we'll be listening to the rocks cry out, but it isn't enough to simply observe nature, right? That's a great starting point to recognize the majesty and glory and honor that God wields. And, you know, to come to think of it, our faith should be more than simply knowing about or or even believing in God. It's not just head knowledge. 
Theologian Klaus Westermann in his book, The Living Psalms, makes a powerful insight in light of Psalm 19. He writes this, both humankind and creation's role in our relationship with God is the same, to praise, to extol, to magnify. When the fundamental relationship with God came to be thought of in terms of believing, well, this vision of oneness of creation was inevitably lost, for to believe is what neither the sun nor the heavens can do. And if you think about it, it's kind of a jarring uh, statement to our Christian sensibilities, don't you think, right? Like all, all our lives we've been told you just have to believe, you just have to believe. And yes, belief is important, but the lesson of Psalm 19 reminds us All creation is praising and proclaiming the glory of God. The rocks are crying out, the mountains, the skies, the clouds, the rivers, the flowers, the animals, all of creation is testifying to the glory and majesty of God. The question is, are we doing the same, friends? Are our lives giving God glory the way that this world is giving glory? And, and, and like creation, we don't have to use the words and say all the time, to God be the glory, to God be the glory. No, can our, can our relationships point others to God? Is God giving glory through how we speak, the, the words we say to one another, especially the people we live with? Can our attitudes and dispositions reflect God's glory? Might our choices and endeavors give glory to God? In, in short, how is our lives reflecting God's glory to those around us. Because if we stay silent, friends, we know these stones, these rocks will cry out. May we not stay silent. May we, in all we say and do, give glory to God, the one who created us and this amazing world. Thanks be to God. Amen.